Welcome to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Centre of Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience and psychology, and we occasionally talk through our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Sarah Strohmeyer, who is a lecturer in psychology at the Canterbury of Christchurch University. And Sarah's research is looking at meditation and the certain doses we can use for treating anxiety, stress and depression. So we speak a little bit about that and about how in terms of meditation, more isn't always better. I'm Sarah. I'm a psychology lecturer in the UK and I am also a mindfulness researcher. So I do a lot of mindfulness research on dose in particular. What that means is the amount of mindfulness practice that is helpful for people, how much people practice versus the outcomes, what's most helpful in the sense of any sort of dose. So relating to practice as well as mindfulness programs, attendance, all those different areas with the main aim to make things more accessible as well, because there's such a plethora of mindfulness offered you know there's apps there's courses there's all these other programs I have a bit of a background in business psychology as well which is where talking about in the well-being space what can help with people's everyday well-being as well as some clinical psychology background so I used to work in a clinical psychology institute where they did some mindfulness interventions for clinical populations as well my main area is sort of making mindfulness more accessible to people so because you also have a clinical background we hear a lot that mindfulness helps anxiety depression and stress how exactly does it do that like what are the mechanisms do we know what think what's happening in the brain how does that work yeah so if we take depression first of all so we've got depression people with depression do a lot of ruminating on the past where they think about like oh 10 years ago I did this, oh no, I feel bad about something else. So there's a lot of ruminating, overly thinking about things. For anxiety, on the other hand, there's a lot of worrying about the future. So in, oh, in 10, you know, I'm not where I'm meant to be at my age or in the future. I'm worried about this. I've got this presentation coming up. I'm anxious about that. So there's a lot of ruminating on the past and worrying about the future with depression and anxiety. And and similarly, stress as well. You know, we, we've all had sort of levels of stress and it can sort of be accelerated to a clinical level as well. So what mindfulness is really helpful for is focusing back on the present moment. So rather than thinking about all the things that have happened in the past and thinking about all the things that you're worried about in the future, sort of bringing it back to the present moment and sort of just being in the present moment without any judgment as well, sort of focusing on the breath. So mindfulness of the breath meditation is quite a common one, for instance, just because that's easy to do because people... People, people are breathing, so they've got that easily accessible. So that's really helpful. So, so just focusing on the present moment rather than worrying about the future or past. So mindfulness can be really helpful for that. And then so if you, say, have anxiety and you practice this mindfulness practice so you can be more focused on the present, does that then, so that can help in that moment. If you do this enough, mm-hmm. does that then have an effect on your overall anxiety? Like going, like, does that stay with you, I guess, that present feeling? Yeah. So a lot of the time, cl- clinically, as well as outside of clinical, people say to practice mindfulness during, during times in your life where you're not feeling overly depressed or having a depressive episode or overly anxious about something. So you can come back to that, have it like a tool in your toolkit. So you know, okay, just taking a step back focusing on the breath at the present moment, focusing on your breath, going for a mindful walk, something like that, that can be really helpful. So you, you keep practicing. It's, it's with, with, with anything that you keep practicing, sometimes it gets you get more used to it or you can apply it more easily once you've, you've done it, you know, before. And then when, 
when you're feeling something else anxious comes around again, then you can come back to the present moment, to your breathing of the things you've learned. And there's a lot of research that supports that as well. So it's been found really helpful for depression and anxiety in particular, just because of that non-present focus that, that depression and anxiety have. So it can be really helpful for that. Yeah, great. So one of your studies looked at the dose of mindfulness. So, And you mentioned in your intro, you, you look at dose of mindfulness. So that's basically how much mindfulness mm-hmm. we should do. What was the motivation to study this? Because I think also we think, oh, the more mindfulness, the better. If we could just meditate all the time, we would be fine. But obviously there was a motivation to see this, this best, best dose. And so, so what was that motivation? Yeah, so that's a, as a bit of a background story to why I did this. So I, this, this is why I did for my PhD. So I originally I did a eight-week mindfulness course. It's called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapies. It's one of their standard courses. This was offered through me for working at a clinical psychology department. We had a qualified mindfulness teacher and we ran this course. So it's an eight-week course. We've got weekly sessions of two and a half to three hours group sessions and then there's daily homework practices they last maybe 45 minutes 50 minutes up to an hour something like that and I did this while working full-time and I thought that was quite intense so so 45 to 50 minutes every day that's a lot to fit in for someone who's never done this before and I thought that was quite hard to do but I then did I, I really liked the mindfulness though so I thought that's really really helpful what I then did is I did an online course from Monash actually at FutureLearn which offered briefer mindfulness practices. So I think it was maybe 10 minute practices, 15 minute practices. You could fit in more easily just from a practical perspective as well. So while I was working full time, you know, you come home at 6 p.m., you have to cook dinner, people have other responsibilities. Things. So, so that came up with the question. So both of these courses are offered at a quite low dose in the sense of briefer practices, briefer engagement with materials, meeting less often with people, offered online, things like that. You know, there's lots of mindfulness apps as well. And then there's, on the other hand, eight-week programs, and there's more than eight-week programs as well. So there's loads and loads of different mindfulness programs offered. And I thought that's quite interesting because how do we know which one's the better one? You know, is it the eight weeks that you need or is it the brief ones that you need? I personally found the brief ones easier as a novice, so as someone new to mindfulness, right? So what I did then is I did like a large-scale meta-analysis. And what that means is I looked at all the different studies that have been published on mindfulness. So including the eight-week mindfulness programs, as well as briefer mindfulness programs. So things like mindfulness apps, two-week mindfulness programs, online mindfulness programs, all, and all the different types of doses of mindfulness. I call them doses because that seemed the best. And basically what I thought would happen is exactly what you said. So that more practice is better. So the more you practice, the better it is for depression, anxiety, and stress. So these were the outcomes that I looked at just because that's the most research been done in these areas. And I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of theory that says you need to do a lot of practice for it to be helpful. You need to be engaging with the material a lot for it to be helpful. But what was really interesting is that is not what I found. There were 203 trials in this review. And basically, the ones that were briefer mindfulness practices and briefer doses and shorter programs and online programs were found just as helpful as the longer programs. So the eight-week face-to-face lots of practice programs, which I thought was really, really interesting because it's not what I thought would happen. I did a lot of additional analyses to see what else could have been going on, but nothing. So basically, short ones can be just as helpful as long ones. And I thought that was really interesting. At first, it was a bit, oh, very surprising finding. And then I thought, okay, so this is a review. We need to be able to sort of check that experimentally so we can infer causation. So if you do reviews, you can't say, something has caused something else, you need to do practical experiments. And what I did was a a randomized controlled trial, which means participants were allocated randomly through computer allocation 
to three different groups. So I had a longer mindfulness practice group, a shorter mindfulness practice group, and a control group that just listened to like the history of the universe or something, nothing mindfulness related. And what I did with these groups as well is that they were novice mindfulness practitioners. So they, I asked them not to participate if they've ever done any mindfulness before, because I wanted to really control for that because people have such many different experiences of mindfulness and I really wanted to control that. And what was really interesting again is that the shorter mindfulness practices in this group was found more helpful than the longer mindfulness practices. And I thought that's again, really, really interesting, but also thinking about the people that it was. I mean, in this study, there were no, um, like no teacher input. There were no discussions with teachers, just isolated practice from everything else. And what's really interesting with that is, is again, so for people coming new to mindfulness, it makes sense to start with smaller practices and then increase that later on if they feel like that's helpful for them. I've since spoken to different people about this because it's quite a surprising finding. Again, it, there's not much theory on this. There's not much research on this. I've spoken to people from different backgrounds. So I've spoken to Buddhists at conferences before and they said, actually, that does make sense because in, in their kasha, so I spoke from someone from China where she was doing a lot of mindfulness practice all her life. That's how she grew up. And she was saying, actually, that makes sense because that's how she started when she was a child. So she was given five minutes, then 10 minutes, and then building that up. And one of the metaphors I use quite a lot is someone trying to run a marathon, right? So who's never done any running before. You wouldn't expect that person to put on their running shoes and run 42 kilometers on the first day. That's not what is recommended. So they do 1K, then 5K, and then they increase it. And then they can run the marathon. On the other hand as well, there's a lot of research saying that actually, when we talk about running, you know, running 5k three times a week for instance is really good for your physical health and your mental health and things like that so you don't have to run a marathon not everyone has to run a marathon not everyone has to go to the olympics for running and i think it might be similar for mindfulness or for some people if it's more helpful to do briefer practices multiple times a week if it's something that means practically as well you know making things more accessible fits in with their schedule fits in with their work or fits in with their life or their responsibilities and they find that helpful then why not do that that's something I found really interesting. And I think it has a lot of practical implications as well with how people practice mindfulness. That's such a nice analogy because that is exactly right in terms of even if we think working out. So we can work out three times a week and then that really helps us in our lives and we're a lot healthier. There are still people who will be iron men or, or elite athletes, yeah. Yeah. but we don't have to be. Yeah, yeah, that's really nice. And I think with mindfulness, because it's becoming more mainstream, you just think, oh, I should just meditate all the time. And that's the best because it hasn't been in Western culture for a long time. And it is this new thing. We probably don't understand. It's like it is kind of like a workout and we don't all have to be, yeah, for example, monks and we can still get a benefit of it yeah and I think it's the whole accessibility thing as well so if we if we think about it I think mindfulness is not something that should just be enjoyed by like the elite or someone who's able to make the time for it you know I, I think it should be something that can be helpful for for different people and it might just look slightly differently you know and I think that's not to say that long mindfulness practices aren't helpful and I mean there's lots and lots and lots of evidence saying that the eight-week programs are really helpful and, and longer programs than that are really, really helpful. And I think that's great. You know, it's not saying that. It's just saying two things can be true at the same time. Right? And, and making that practically accessible for different people, I think, as well. So it's not like, oh, you need to be practicing for 10 years and then you get some helpfulness. And it, you know, that's, that's quite difficult for some people to do. People are working. People have responsibilities. People don't necessarily have access to that as well so this doesn't have to be like a population necessarily of with just thinking of someone working full-time right 
it would be quite hard for employers to give that person two and a half to three hours off, create space in their workplace to practice up to an hour a day. from a practical perspective. What are some other things that we can do that can be helpful for people as well? Yeah, that's super interesting. So another question I have is, so obviously anxiety and depression are really complex disorders and people have different experiences and we already know with the treatments that are available now, not everything suits everyone. Some people get worse if they do something. So even with antidepressants, it's not like, oh, this will just fix everyone. It's like very complicated and there's a lot of research going into alternative interventions. And so mindfulness has come up as like, oh, this could be something that could be a helpful intervention for these disorders. When we're thinking of this as an intervention, how does this work in terms of like, is mindfulness something that can help everyone? Are there some people who shouldn't do mindfulness? Are there some people who should do, you mentioned like a good one is, is focusing on the breath for the present moment. Are there some people, for example, if you, if you get panic attacks and yeah. So how does, in terms of thinking as a treatment, does that all work? That's a great question because I don't think mindfulness necessarily works for everyone or not every type of practice works for everyone. So to give you an example, I had a participant in one of my studies that was asked to do 20 minutes of mindfulness practice as part of the study. And she found that very, very difficult. So she was fidgeting in her seat. So this was a mindfulness of the breath meditation practice where we ask people to sit in a chair or wherever they feel comfortable and follow a guided meditation of focusing on the breath. So she found that very hard. So she was fidgeting in her seat quite a lot, uncrossing her legs, recrossing her legs, all that sort of stuff. And for her in particular, I think a walking meditation would have been more helpful because she was telling me she finds it quite hard sitting still. So if she goes up to any sort of lectures or things like that, she finds that really hard. And I think for someone like that, for instance, a walking meditation would be good. So going out and paying attention to how you're walking, how it feels on your feet when you're walking, if you can feel the wind in your hair, all that sort of stuff. So different types of practices work better with different people. I also had a meeting with someone earlier this week, Susan Bogle from, from Amsterdam, and she was saying that people with burnout, sometimes longer practices are more helpful. So for that population, longer practices can be more helpful because it feels like it, it is right for that population. You know, it's really, really helpful to take more time on, on mindfulness. And then we've got different people. So people with ADHD, sometimes shorter practices are more helpful. Or things like panic attacks. There's a lot of practices on different, specifically catered to panic attacks, where sometimes it's quite helpful to have Brief reminders of where the main aim is to stop panicking and coming back to the present moment. I think if you gave someone like that a really long practice, it would be quite difficult. I don't know if it would help the panic necessarily. I mean, it might, but just having a think about what works best for someone as well. And there's different populations as well. So with children, for instance, sometimes briefer practices can be more helpful just because that makes it more accessible to them. Changing of wording sometimes as well can be helpful. So there's been some research with people with dementia, for instance, where they've changed the wording of mindfulness practice instructions to make it more accessible for them. Oh, and does the mindfulness help the dementia patients? I've, I've never come across that before. So it doesn't help with the dementia itself. But it can help with things like general well-being. So things like anxieties and depression or feeling more content. Yeah. You can't reverse dementia. But, yeah. But, you know, it can still be helpful for their quality of life. So do you think that one way interventions could work is we'd go to the doctor and they would be aware of the different mindfulnesses for different things people might mm. be going through and you could be given the specific one as the intervention? Is that something you see a way of this working as an aid? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, I think. 
I think even being able to have someone let people know what kind of mindfulness practices are there who's qualified to do so. So for instance, in social media, there's lots and lots of mindfulness, you know, oh, just do some mindfulness. And it's not always evidence-based. So it needs to be evidence-based practices. You can't just be like, oh, you just buy this cushion and you'll be great sort of thing. It can be quite dangerous as well. Well, also some mindfulness practices are not helpful for some people. It will be Britain, for instance, has done some research with people having difficulty sleeping. Sometimes longer mindfulness practices, what she found is that that's actually not that helpful. So if it's over 30 mm-hmm. minutes, it's really unhelpful for people with insomnia, for instance. So making sure that there's maybe, so what you're saying with, with a GP or something like that would be great. I think we're still a long way away from that because we haven't tested that much so there's a lot of the longer programs that are implemented a lot more but again that's less accessible so having a place where people can go and having a look at okay I'm feeling quite low or I'm having difficulty with my anxieties and then using a mindfulness practice but that's been grounded in evidence that's not just someone doing something I think mindfulness is sometimes seen as a bit of a panacea as well so there's some research saying that there's a hyped up mindfulness term. So there's research by Nicholas Van Damme from Melbourne saying like, you know, that's not helpful having like a hype of mindfulness. But on the other hand, in the US, they had Amazon workers and they have just horrible working conditions. So there are yeah. no breaks, overwork, loads of hours and just giving them some meditation pods and say like, oh, here you go. Just do some meditation. You'll feel better. It's not going to be helpful for that. So there's some structural issues that need to change as well. And I think sometimes it can be quite tricky because especially in the media, it comes up quite a lot are saying oh just do some mindfulness you'll be great and there might be some other things that need fixing as well so I don't think it can fix everything or help with everything yeah because we actually did speak about mindfulness on the podcast before and we kind of went down this hole of oh like it's not like some of these apps are quite dangerous and because that's what you're saying is if it's not evidence-based and if people are just doing the one that's not right for them, but thinking that they should be keep doing it and all these kind of things. And we spoke about the hype around it. But then what's a shame is have people miss out on the opportunity for the stuff that is good. Uh, so it provides like a barrier of people even starting mindfulness practice, I think. And also, I think in the media, a lot of the time, because mindfulness has become such a hype term or social yeah. media people are unsure what it is actually or people can be a bit like oh no that's not worked for me but they haven't actually done mindfulness so it can be quite damaging what stopped them from starting actual mindfulness practice that's evidence-based like you say so that's really important to to get that out there more but it's really tricky to do as well and that's why it needs to be made more accessible because I think that a lot of people wouldn't think that going on a walk and focusing on your feet and the wind would be a mindfulness practice I don't think people would know that. I think they would think it's just sitting, listening to someone. And I think even that could definitely probably help a lot of people but they don't know that that is a practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the eight-week courses like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, for instance, has a walking meditation in it where there's still some instructions so that you still have your AirPods in or, or whatever. And then you can feel the wind, you know, and it's giving you cues because some people find that hard as well. And that's, that's all right. You know, like finding some helpful information that you can follow or some instructions that you can follow as well. And, and I think it, I think it's probably with anything, you know, different things are differently helpful for different people. We're not yeah. all the same. So I think in medicine and, and biology, like if you give someone paracetamol, similar things are probably going to happen. But I think in psychology, what people find helpful is, is much more complex and I think that's okay you know just having a look at what people find help going with that yeah definitely and I think the thing is that if you try something and it doesn't work for you that's okay there's nothing wrong with you you can try this other thing yeah. and I think 
with the hype, sometimes there comes this pressure that I have to be great at it and I have to have this amazing experience the second I do it. And if I don't, there's something wrong. And I think it's important for people to understand, no, that's fine. And that's an experience a lot of people have too, that they just need to find the right practice for them. Yeah. And even it, sometimes it can go as small scale as the instructor voice. So some people might prefer mm-hmm. a female voice, for instance, for their mindfulness practices, or they might prefer a slower pace of mindfulness instructions. No, totally. So one of your recent studies looked at the effects of state hope and state gratitude on mindfulness. Can you explain what state hope and state gratitude are and how we can measure this and what that experience is and how does that change our behavior? So we've got state hope and state gratitude. So in psychology or in, in research quite often you'd hear the words trait and state. So trait normally means what people habitually are like. So when we talk about hope, for instance, how habitually hopeful they are in everyday life, so how they generally are. Whereas in state, it's sort of in the moment, how they're feeling right now in the moment. And in this study that you mentioned, it's looking at the states of the in the moment levels of hope and gratitude in particular. So what that one was is a mindfulness induction. So that's a single session mindfulness practice, because I wanted to just see a single 10-minute mindfulness practice, what the effects are on these positive psychological outcomes. So for stage hope, sometimes hope is a bit of a funny term because we've got sort of connotations with that. I know there's been some research with very corporate people, investment bankers, and they just call it goal setting. They right. just call it goal setting because it feels like it fits, you know, with yeah. their demographic. And hope sounds a bit, you know, not quite applicable <laughs> to investment bankers potentially. And so they have sort of translated that to to fit the terminology. And so it's all about goal setting of the future focus. Gratitude, on the other hand, is looking at about how grateful people feel in the present moment, what their level of gratitude is for being here. And what we looked at is, so doing a 10-minute mindfulness practices has been found to increase state hope and state gratitude. Why that's important is that gratitude and hope have in turn been found to be really helpful for your well-being. So if you've got higher levels of hope, so future goal setting, high levels of gratitude, so how grateful you are for what you've got in the moment. There's been lots of research saying that that's really helpful for people. Just focusing on the positives, because we do a lot of focusing on the negatives and all the things that are bad. But there's research that's actually found mindfulness meditations increase people's in the moment hope and gratitude, which then in turn has helped with their levels of anxiety and depression. So just having it as an additional mechanism for how it can increase depression and anxiety as well. So feeling more positive about things. Yeah, that makes sense. So like feeling more positive about the future and it's less of that rumination. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And what I did as well is looking at their change in state mindfulness. So we've got, again, with mindfulness, we've got traits and states of trait mindfulness, how people are generally, how mindful people are. You know, people are quite different in generally how they are without any mindfulness practice, how mindful they are in their everyday life, things like that. But also in the moment state mindfulness, how mindful they are after a mindfulness practice and before and after you can compare that. And that's actually been found really helpful. So people with greater change in state mindfulness before and after a mindfulness practice has increased their levels of state hope and state gratitude even further, which then in turn has helped with levels of depression and anxiety as well, which is really interesting. So we know that even briefer mindfulness practices can help change the state mindfulness that you're in as well so that can be really helpful way of coping and what does mindfulness practice look like that induces state hope and state gratitude is that just like any practice or is there specific practices that do that more or that's a great question it's not been tested across all the different mindfulness practices but I think that's really, really interesting. I'd, I'd want to do some more research into that as well, because a lot of research being done on mindfulness of the breath, like I mentioned, because that's just easily accessible 
There's also things like body scans, which is where the instructor said you focus on different parts of your body. They can be helpful as well. But again, someone who's got difficulties with their body image, for instance, that might be less helpful. Or someone with eating disorders could be less helpful. But definitely there needs to be more research on that. There's not been that much research on the different mindfulness practices. I wanted to include that as like a a dose variable in my Mm -hmm. review paper. But it was quite difficult to find out what kind of practices people did and then quantifying that in a meaningful way that to run analyses. But I think that will be really, really helpful. I'm also just applied for some funding to look at personality types and mindfulness practice. If there's a difference there, you know, like if people who are more extroverted maybe prefer longer mindfulness practices or shorter mindfulness practices. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done in that space of dose and mindfulness. And with the gratitude and hope, so did you test a mindfulness practice that focused on the breath in that study? Yes. So how would doing a practice like that change our state hope and state gratitude? Is there any ideas on how that would work? That's a great question. So sometimes people can get a little bit overwhelmed with all the things we need to do. So all the everyday things. So it doesn't have to be something super negative that happens, you know, a traumatic events. But even everyday things can be really stressful and really, oh, I've got to do my shopping. I've got to do this work. I've got all the deadlines my to-do list. So sometimes taking a step back again, focusing on mindfulness of the breath, meditation practice, so focusing on the present moment, where we're here right now, gives you a bit of distance from all the things that are going on, which then has been found to translate into people being better able to, to do that goal setting in the future, right? To feel more grateful to be here in that present moment as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And I suppose when you're not feeling hopeful or grateful, you're not normally focusing on the present moment, unless I guess you're going through mm, something really exactly. traumatic at that time. Yeah, or you're overwhelmed with all your to-do lists yeah. and things like that, which is quite a normal. Everyone knows what that feels like. So just taking a step back and then feeling like, oh, actually, there's goals I can achieve, things I can work towards. I feel more hopeful about the future now. But having a bit of distance, not letting it overwhelm yourself. And do you also look at how these mindfulness practices work across cultures? So I'm not sure who your participants are, because I feel like that would be a massive thing, right? Depending on Absolutely. what culture you're yeah. from. That's really interesting because I think that's, again, where mindfulness research or psychology research in general yeah. is quite tricky to do. So I think in psychology research, a lot of participants are psychology undergraduate students, as you, you will know, because that's oftentimes easier to to recruit, which is very limiting in research. Or similarly, if you're looking at papers so in, in the review I did, I had to limit it to English writing, just really limiting again, because it's not inclusive of all the other great research that's been done, not in English. So it's really, really tricky. I think there needs to be more of that and seeing what it looks like from different cultures or within the Australian context from Aboriginal cultures, where that looks differently and maybe where practices need to be adapted to work in a culture. And I think that would be really, really interesting. Similarly, the International Conference on Mindfulness had another conference in 2019, which was in New Zealand, and they dedicated some space for research with Maori participants as well. And I think that's really, really important to do. There's been some research on different religions. So there's been some research with Buddhism. There's been some research with Christianity as well, some Muslim research as well. I think that's really, really important because we can't, with mindfulness, that it doesn't necessarily work to just have a one-size-fits-all program and then say, like, oh, there you go. Are there researchers looking at that? I think it's really slowly maybe changing, but I think not too much yet. It can be quite tricky to do yeah. because, of, you know, because a lot of the time in research, you need a certain number of participants 
and being able to access them and, and, and things like that. But things are changing as well. So I've just recently written a chapter on a self-compassion scale, which is a scale that's often used to measure self-compassion. And it's been translated into, I think, over 20 languages around the world. And what I focus on in this chapter as well with colleagues is to think about, okay, so we've translated this measure to, to measure self-compassion. But what does it look like in different cultures? So this is a scale that was developed in America. They've translated it to different cultures and they, you know, might not necessarily fit. So the entire culture, self-compassion is very different to US culture. So there's different ways of measuring that. And then if you've got scale like that, and oftentimes, you know, scales have like a, a Likert scale from one to five, where you say how much you agree with each state. And then there's also research saying that in some Asian cultures, it is is unlikely people go to the extremes, like oh, like say yes, a hundred percent agree or hundred percent right. disagree. People say like, oh yeah, a little bit agree, a little bit disagree. So even things like that, where we're measuring mindfulness or measuring self compassion, there needs to be an adaptation in how we do that to fit with different cultures as well. So not again, not having one size fits all, but adapting what we're using. That's so interesting. I knew about the the wording of different scales and when you translate them, but I, I didn't know about the responding on the extremes, but I think that that would totally make sense that different cultures would respond yeah. to that numeric, like some would do the extremes and some wouldn't. Yeah, and then it doesn't necessarily work. So if you've got the same research yeah. in different cultures, it does not mean that it's the same thing. Yeah, because you could just say, oh, they experience this less, but they experience it the same. They're just responding less. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just the way they respond to questionnaires. Yeah, that's so interesting. So if someone is looking to start mindfulness, there's so much out there. What advice would you give them? Totally fresh, where should they start? I think definitely what I found from my research is can be more helpful to start with briefer practices. So five, 10 minutes or so is actually quite helpful for people to get a feel for mindfulness, to see, oh, does this work for me? Is this something I want to I want to be doing? And and then maybe increase it if they feel comfortable. I would also say looking for evidence-based practices that have been developed by mindfulness teachers. And there's some research behind it as well. So people have done some experimental research just because there's so much out there and some of it is not mindfulness and can be quite harmful to people as well, I would say. And start practicing with brief practices, I would say, and then increasing it. Yeah, cool. I think that's good advice. So thank you so much. So I guess the last question is, is there any new stuff you're working on or anything exciting you'd like to share? Yeah. I'm one of those people I always like to know the answers to more questions <laughs> and then it brings up more questions and then I need to ask more questions. So there's always there's always more to work on. One of the things that I've worked on recently as well, and this is still in progress, is looking at the quality of the mindfulness practices people do so I'm working with some people in Tasmania in Sydney as well as in Auckland in New Zealand and we've developed a mindfulness practice quality measure looking at practice quality for different types of mindfulness practices so there's different types of measures already but not really one that is looking at different types of practices and how people find them helpful and again looking at the state mindfulness practice and how they answer this and then see oh actually Maybe this was less helpful. Maybe I need to look into that a little bit more. So looking at different measures that can be helpful and then using those and changing them for different cultures. And then again, just looking at the dose question because there's so many other questions still unanswered that I would like to look into more. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I think the dose thing is so important. Yeah, because you're so right yeah. when people start mindful. It's like, oh my God, I've got to go on an eight-week retreat. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't do yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's a like cost associated to that as well. So yeah. it makes it sort of inaccessible um, for anyone who's not able to afford going on an eight-week retreat or doing a, a longer mindfulness program and 
just practically, I think, which is a real shame because it stops people starting mindfulness and reaping some benefits already. So I think one thing that can be confusing that especially for me was confusing when I first started looking into meditation and mindfulness is like, what do those things actually mean? But basically, from what I understand, and of course, Beth, you can jump in, is that mindfulness is not necessarily sitting down and thinking about your breath in a way where your eyes are closed and you're not doing anything else. Mindfulness is like a way of being that you can take into other facets of your life. And it's just noticing things and being in the present moment, as people like to say, although I also feel like that's a little bit vague. And we'll talk about that later. And then meditation is more of that practice of when we think about closing our eyes and thinking about something specific and focusing our mind on something specific, which can be if we're thinking about mindfulness meditation, also just letting your mind go and notice whatever you're feeling, your thoughts, whatever comes up, but still focusing your mind on focusing on whatever is coming up for you. So I think just to be clear on what those distinctions are, because I think most of the time we are in this podcast, from what I understand, actually talking about meditation as opposed to mindfulness, Yeah, because we are talking about the practice of sitting yeah. down and closing our eyes and focusing on something or perhaps like going outside for a walk and focusing on something there. Yeah, I think one way sometimes when I get confused between the two, because I do. So you can have trait mindfulness. So you can just be a person who has more mindfulness than another person but you can't really have trait meditation so a more mindful person may pay attention to more things you know we say we're mindful of what we're eating when you have a conversation be mindful of what you're saying those more reflective or metacognition of well what am I actually doing we actually did in the center this 10 or 12 week course called true happiness where we were learning a lot of these practices and it was really nice because so this is an example of how the mindfulness played out we started the course in the winter and then it became spring and the spring came and I was like, oh, they've planted way more flowers this spring. How lovely is that? But it was the same amount of flowers. It's just because I'd been doing all this focusing on attention to the good things. I was just noticing way more flowers that were there last spring as well. And I think that comes with more mindfulness. Oh, that's yes. a nice story. <laughs> well, I guess that brings me to something that you talked about a lot in the podcast with Sarah, which was about the fact that sometimes mindfulness can have negative effects. Mm. And I was thinking about it. And I think what you're saying there brought to mind what I was thinking in terms of like these negative effects is that if you're focusing on your environment, then of course, if you're only training yourself to focus on good things, then maybe you're more likely to only notice the flowers. But also if you're training yourself just to be present and mm -hmm. to have this hyper focus which people who are practicing mindfulness often say that they have as a side effect if you're hyper focused then you can be hyper focused on negative stuff too and one thing that happens pretty often in a lot of these reviews that people have looked at in terms of the quote-unquote dark sides of meditation is that sometimes people have trouble sleeping Mm. And one thing that they've found is that that's actually sort of a side effect of the hyperfocus as well, because if you have hyperfocus and you're able to notice how beautiful the flowers are and how intense they're <laughs> like the color is or something or how beautiful the elevator music that you're listening to is just because you've never thought to listen to it. If you're trying to fall asleep and there's small sounds in the background, as probably most of us who live in cities experience, or there's even like a clock on your wall, then that can be really annoying because you're just trained to hyper focus on everything and be so present that 
maybe sometimes you're not allowing your mind to go. And so that was just something I was thinking about in terms of the way that we think about all of these things about like progress and meditation within our cultural context. We're always thinking about better versus worse, I think. Mm -hmm. And often when we're trying to do mindfulness or implement a mindfulness practice, maybe some of you who are listening like me have tried to set a resolution to do mindfulness to try and better yourself. Some things might not be better or worse. It's just that as you change and as you do something, you're maybe not going to experience the same things all the time. Just like if you're being more mindful and you maybe don't have to be like hyper stimulating yourself all the time, like this is my problem. If I'm able to go outside on a walk and I don't have to listen to a podcast or I don't have to scroll on TikTok while I'm brushing my teeth, then maybe I'm going to miss some news. Maybe I'm going to miss some of the the TikTok trends that my friends will be talking about. Maybe I'll feel left out. Maybe I'll feel left out when my undergrad students send some memes that I don't understand. So I feel like there's positives and negatives to a lot of things. And that's something that we just have to accept. And that's normal. I think this idea of like better or worse is something that we also need to change in terms of the way that we frame when we talk about meditation and its side effects. Yeah, I think that that's a really nice point. And I suppose that's with everything and things aren't just black and white and things just don't make everything better or everything worse. And I think that that's a really good thing to think about. And we should probably think about that in all our research areas as well when we're thinking about what we're looking at and what interventions we want to use. With the hyper-focus thing, I wonder if you then also do maybe more of the compassion meditations or the love and kindness meditations, if that helps with that hyper-focus. I actually have a cool study by Olivia Carter, who's a researcher at the Melbourne University, so here in Australia too. And she tested binocular rivalry on monks. So binocular rivalry is when you have an image shown to your left eye an image shown to your right eye and what happens is as you're sitting there with the images in front of your eyes it goes back and forth between the two images so I think with hers she had a green thing on the left eye and a red thing on the right eye and it's going back and forth with us or a non-meditation person it would just go back and forth and this is looking at our sensory input our attention and she went and did this study on, on monks so these are monks who have practiced for a lot of years so they did two kinds of meditations they did a compassion meditation that focused on loving kindness. And then he also did a one point meditation and that's the maintained focus of attention on a single object. And the idea is that you, you calm down by being distracted from, from other things because you're just focusing on that one object. And what she found was when the monks did the focused attention or the one point meditation, they were able to not switch between the two images So one of the images in, say, the left or right eye, they were able to maintain that image steadily in their focus throughout the trial. So that it's called switching. So their switch rate was way lower than in meditation naive participants. But then with the compassion one, there was no difference. Just to clarify then, so was it monks were told to do that meditation beforehand? Yeah. Specifically? Okay, okay. And then they ran through the task. Oh, that's interesting that just such a small thing can have that influence, that it's not like, oh, just because you're a monk and you're used to focusing your attention more. Because that's what I thought. I was like, oh, maybe just being a monk, you have that change in perception. But no, you you do the, the meditation and then you have that change. But in terms of what you were saying about feeling, you know, the hyper focused, it's interesting that then that other the other meditation, they did the compassion one. They didn't have the same attention effects. So that could maybe counteract 
if you're feeling too focused or too much attention to do something like that instead. Mm, that's true. That's interesting. I mean, that's so surprising to me because I definitely would have thought that there would be more long-lasting effects that couldn't be undone that quickly. So that's surprising <laughs> that, like, that just doing a loving-kindness meditation. Or perhaps it's actually just that if you're in a groove of doing a certain thing, like if you're super well-trained in this focus meditation and then right after you finish your focus meditation you're in that mode of focus maybe mm -hmm. it's just harder for those monks to get out of that mode because they're so practiced and their brain maybe like latching on to that type of I'm assuming there's probably some kind of brainwave involved there. Well, speaking of different types of meditations, there also was a study in the opposite type of population, so people who had never done meditation before. And this was a 2016 study from the Max Planck Institute in Germany. And they had 200 adults come in, and they had them participate in a nine-month mindfulness training. And it taught four different types of meditation. So they did the breathing meditation, which is typical to what you probably have done maybe like on headspace or something where you focus your attention on how it feels to breathe they also had people do body scans where you focus on each individual part of your body from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes and then they also had this meditation that beth was talking about the love and kindness meditation which is a practice that's basically supposed to help you with expressing and feeling feelings of love and care and the way that it typically goes is that you start with someone that you love so someone very close to you and then as it progresses, you expand to people that you don't even know. And That's maybe my favorite you don't meditation, like. by the way. I love that one. I find that one very intense. Like, do you enjoy it or do you feel good? Because I know some people struggle with it, too. I don't struggle with it, but the only times that I've done it, I've been in a group of like more people and I cry every time oh which anyone so who's listening who knows me knows that that's very common yeah that's not surprising <laughs> but I don't know I feel like it's very intense to just know that people around you are trying to make that effort to express love or at least you know try to surmount maybe how they feel about someone that maybe they don't really like I don't know something about it is really beautiful and moving and like yeah, too no, intense I've never done it by myself, so I don't know if I would cry by everyone. Okay, so that was the third kind. And then they also had people do this observing thought meditation. So that's also, we've mentioned this, is just seeing what your mind is doing without you trying to control it, meaning you've probably encountered times when you're daydreaming or when you just start thinking about your to-do list. And that's this meditation is just noticing that those thoughts are happening and letting them float away and not getting absorbed in them. And so they found that during these different types of meditations, different things happened and different benefits arose. So during the body scan, for example, participants, not a shocker, but they they had an increase in how aware they were of their bodies. And also this was where there was the biggest decline in how many thoughts people reported having, and especially negative thoughts that were about the past or the future. So in the body scan, it seemed like this really allowed people to focus in on what was happening in the present and just grounded them within their bodies. Also, unsurprisingly, love and kindness led to people having an increase in feelings of warmth and positive thoughts about others. And then observing thought meditation increased people's awareness of their own thoughts, obviously. But also what's interesting about this type of meditation and also loving kindness have both shown to actually reduce bias in certain cases. So there's mm -hmm. been 
one study that had white Americans doing these types of meditations, and then they actually behaved in less discriminatory ways in a future task towards black Americans, which is interesting, that it doesn't only change your thoughts, but actually changes how you're acting in the world. And then there was another study where they had people judging homeless people, and they found that people were actually more kind when they had done these meditations. So it seems like, again, this is similar to what Sarah was saying, but if you have a specific issue that maybe Mm -hmm. there's a specific type of meditation that is right for you that you should choose to focus on because as Beth said, even for these monks, it can make a really big difference in how you go about your day and maybe also how you act in the future. And I think a lot of the times for people who don't know much about meditation, certainly me, all of them seem the same because we have no expertise and it's just from the outside just looks like closing your eyes. So yeah, I also I recently had had a pretty stressful time going on and no surprise because I was really stressed. I got sick and I was on this medication, these antibiotics to try and get better. And it wasn't really working because I was just so stressed. So I was just in fight or flight. So all my energy was going towards that and not actually getting better. And it was interesting because I had this conversation with Sarah and then the doctor was like, you know, you need to work out what to do just to calm down because it's not good for you to feel this way. And they were talking about practices I could do. And they said, you know, you could do meditation. I thought, oh, this is exactly what we're talking about. And then they followed up with, but when you're in this state, definitely don't do any focused attention or stillness meditations because if you're already feeling quite anxious and ruminating about things, sitting alone in a room trying to you know even observe that is quite difficult so they suggested doing a walking meditation which is also one that Sarah mentioned so that's where you go outside and you notice the trees and the ground or just be more I think to me that's being more mindful so I thought that was interesting that we had spoken about this and then that's something that directly (laughs) applied to me yay but I did find it really helped and I also had a chat with Kevin And he said, yeah, during times of really high stress or things, walking meditations or even, I feel like I've spoken about this a lot on this podcast, gratitude practice. He's like, those are better forms when you're in that way to to feel better. And he also advised against doing any focused attention or stillness, stillness meditation. Okay, so I have a question about this. (laughs) So I think I've also told this story before on the podcast on our our first episode about mindfulness, but... There was one time where this was when Beth and I first met where we went to a yoga class that was like a yin yoga class. And for those of you who are not familiar with yoga, yin is kind of like you just sit there for like five minutes and you hold a pose and you just don't do anything. It's not like intense. You're not sweating. You're just sitting there and maybe you like have a leg on your shoulder or something. And... I was in this class, it was an hour long, and I was so pissed off like during this class. I was like, what the heck are we doing here? And I was like not having a good time, I was hungry, I was just like, this is ridiculous, this is useless, what's the point? Like, I need to work out, I don't need to do this. And afterwards, we checked in with each other, Beth and I, and my partner was also there, and I was like, that sucked. And before I could even say that it sucked, They were like, wow, that was so amazing. I was crying. And like, what an amazing time we had. And that was so powerful. And I was like, what just happened? And I hated it. And so this brings me to the question of people recommended that you don't do certain types of meditation when you're already in a bad place. And Sarah also talked about you have to figure out what's right for you. 
But to me, the question is, how do you do that? Because sometimes those things don't feel good at all. And I didn't have a good time when I was doing that yin meditation. But at the same time, I think I really needed it because I didn't know how to stay still. I was like I mentioned, as you maybe know, listeners, I am a person that I think I need a lot of overstimulation. And that's because I've trained myself into doing that. And it's not a good thing. Like I'm a multitasker, even though I know that I am actually not. No one is. And I feel like that's really difficult to figure out, Okay, what's right for me when on the one hand, it's don't do things that feel bad. But on the other hand, if you're working out, that feels bad, but you should keep doing it. So I think that's kind of difficult. And there's also this Zen Buddhist saying, definitely to say if I'm wrong, but that says that when you're thinking about doses of meditation, as Sarah was talking about, that you should try to meditate 20 minutes. And if you're too busy, then you have to meditate an hour. (laughs) So I think this question that Sarah brought up of what's the appropriate dose, what's the appropriate type of meditation, and trying to figure it out for yourself and one size doesn't fit all, I feel like it's really difficult to figure yeah. out actually when it's just you. And I think if there were recommendations, like the way that you got that recommendation of like, don't do that because it's not going to feel good. I don't know if we can all do that for ourselves by yeah. saying, okay, this doesn't feel good for me. Because maybe if it doesn't feel good, it means you need to do that thing. And I'm just, I'm lost for myself of how to know when to keep pushing and when to pull back and realize this isn't right. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good point because I definitely know with yin also people usually initially are very resistant to it at first but because they need it as you said and then once they get through that then they love it like the way me and Gam were just like yeah this is the best so in that sense I do think it's something you need to push through what I would say maybe you know when you're working out and there's a pain that's kind of okay and then there's a pain like no there's an injury and you know how you can tell the difference maybe with the meditation it's the same thing you can I mean this is maybe there's something in it you can go no this is causing me something that feels like a healthy pain like an exercising pain and then it's like no this is causing me something that feels more like an injury pain I think what's interesting about that is that when we meditate and as lay people when we embark on this stuff we are trying to do it to be able to quote unquote better ourselves and understand ourselves better but it seems like to even be able to meditate and choose the right one you've already need to be pretty in touch with yourself because yeah I think sometimes if you're really disconnected from yourself and you're absorbing a lot of outside stimuli and not really feeling the way that you're feeling it's very easy to not understand cues from your body Mm -hmm. and to maybe totally because I mean yeah working out too like my friends know every time I work out I say I almost threw up today and they're like why don't you stop before you get to that point and I'm like mm, not sure <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know I think it's just difficult because it seems like the people who might need the most help with this and who mm. might need it the most are the people who are the most ill-equipped to be able to start that journey properly for themselves yeah and I'm not sure what to do with that Well, going back again to, I honestly love this meditation example that Sarah used, but maybe that's also why you start with five minutes first. Mm. Because if you do that five minutes, then you're slowly learning. I don't think the quote that if you don't have time, you should do an hour. I don't know about that. But if you do start with five minutes, then you should hopefully slowly start to build up and then notice like, no, this isn't right. But yeah, I think that these are really good questions and it is hard to work out what's what's the best 
for everyone. And I guess that, yeah, again, it can be like, it's the same with exercise. There are certain people who can't run. They shouldn't be running. And there's certain people who shouldn't be doing yoga and those things. Yeah, I think also with the sports metaphor, there's all these headlines about how running marathons is really bad for you. But typically, if you're doing it right, if you're training properly and all of the conditions are right, then it's good for you. Then it's pretty much going to be a benefit to you. Although there is like some disagreement about whether running 100 kilometers is any better for you than like 10K. But I feel like that's the issue as well is that we don't have the research right now to understand what exactly are the optimal conditions and the optimal way to train like how to do the stretching how to make sure that you're not screwing up your ligaments metaphorically you know so it feels definitely like a place where we just need more research and i guess in the absence of research try it but that seems like not the best (laughs) advice although it's just i guess in a sense it also is just sitting with your eyes closed or walking around and thinking about your feet so maybe (laughs) we can all do that (laughs) maybe we can do that for five minutes so another thing sarah was talking about is why is meditation good for stress anxiety and depression and you know she was saying how it makes you more in the present moment so you stop worrying about the past and the future so i thought it would be Nice to also talk about what brain regions are involved in meditation. So anxiety is reduced during meditation because there's the activation of the anterior cingulate cortex, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the anterior insula. So with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, that's involved in down-regulating negative emotions. So if that's activated, we're better at regulating those negative emotions which totally makes sense why that helps with anxiety and depression and it's also associated when we have more cognitive control and our working memory and also how we appraise sensory information and then also if you have more activation in the anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insula that's related for again cognitive control of emotion and sensory evaluation but it's also related to integrating our cognitive, effective and sensory representations to produce this continuous and fluctuating awareness of the self. So that makes sense because it brings it back to the self and, and who we are. So when I read that, I was like, oh, if those areas do become more activated in meditation, it would make sense why this would reduce our feelings of anxiety and depression and stress. Yeah, that's really cool. I also saw one study that was looking at the connectivity of the brain. And I think a lot of those regions, what's cool about them is that they're really highly connected to different Mm. regions of the brain. And there was one study that found that the prefrontal cortex, so again, that's like the planning and higher thought region of the brain, was more connected to the amygdala. And so the amygdala is often thought about as a fear center, but it's really just seeing salient things come in. And so any type of really salient emotional content will be flagged by the amygdala. And a lot of the times the most salient things are negative. So the amygdala is usually really active when we're processing a lot of emotions and negative emotions in particular. And so the fact that meditation allows those two regions to be more connected just basically means that the prefrontal cortex and our planning regions are more able to be in control of those thoughts that arise basically so to me it felt like the brain implementing that idea of seeing a thought arise maybe it's a bad thought and not clinging on to it and just allowing it to just pass away yeah totally and if you think about 
also in anxiety and depression, so much of it is bringing in this other information and relating it to yourself when it doesn't need to be. So someone says anything, you overanalyze that and that's related to you and you can spiral on that one thought. And if these areas of the brain that I can control and help with that process are activated during meditation, to me, I was like, oh, that makes sense why that helps because it's like, okay, you can understand that someone said that it's got nothing to do with me right now. Or if you're anxious, you think everyone's thinking about you all the time (laughs) and it's hard to understand what's related to you and what's not. And I thought it was cool to think, oh, okay, it makes sense that, that this process helps with just making you more aware of that. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuzo. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Thank you.